Good morning. It's Wednesday, August 4th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. President Joe Biden is calling on New York's governor to resign. Andrew Cuomo is facing growing pressure. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, most of the New York congressional delegation, and other top statewide and national Democrats want him out. This near-united vote of no confidence comes after New York's Attorney General Letitia James announced the findings of her investigation. Her team looked into a pattern of workplace abuse and harassment by the governor and his aides. James's report puts forward what it calls, quote, a deeply disturbing yet clear picture of a governor who allegedly sexually harassed 11 women, including current and former state employees, an executive who fostered a culture of fear and intimidation in the workplace. The investigators also found that Cuomo retaliated against at least one woman for coming forward with her allegations. The report concludes the governor and his aides violated federal and state laws. I'm struck by how consistent the patterns of behavior are, how consistent the stories are, and how amply documented they are. Rebecca Traster is a senior writer at New York Magazine and the author of Good and Mad. Earlier this year, she wrote an article based on interviews she did with people who used to work for Cuomo. The experience of some of those people, the ones she spoke with, were cited in the Attorney General's report. We reached out to Traster to talk about these new findings. She laid out what she sees as the different categories of Cuomo's alleged power abuse. One is tied to the more direct allegations of sexual harassment. There are several people who worked closely for Governor Cuomo, who testified for this report, who talk about direct sexualized come-ons, kisses on the lips. There is another woman who is unnamed in this report who worked for him directly, who alleges that he touched her inappropriately and that at one point at the governor's mansion, he groped her breast. Another category relates to more subtle harassment comments he allegedly made about the way women around him dressed, including new reports of a female state trooper that Cuomo handpicked to serve in his protective detail. The trooper described unwanted touching and comments. There is an unnamed state trooper in this report who talks about how he asks her directly why she's wearing pants to an event, and he tells her that she looks Amish or something, which she understood to mean that her clothes were too baggy. And then there are other stories about his senior staffers sort of indicating to female employees that they needed to wear high heels, that they needed to dress in a certain way that would be aesthetically appealing. And there are the repeated allegations of a toxic work culture in the governor's office. The report concludes that Cuomo and his aides created a hostile environment that allowed the governor's sexual harassment to take place. There was a tremendous sense of fear and intimidation within the office, bullying, vindictive behavior, a culture of threat, yelling. If you stepped out of line or challenged the governor or members of his senior staff, that you would fall out of favor, that you would be imperiled, your job would be imperiled, your future employment would be imperiled. With his remaining allies now joining calls for his resignation, it looks like there's enough support in New York's legislature to impeach Cuomo and remove him from office. But Tracer says, at least for now, 
She sees Cuomo sticking with a strategy that worked for him in the past. So much of what was in the report today was in newspaper reporting in the spring. And he just muscled through. He denied it, and he and he muscled through, even in the face of a 168-page, amply corroborated report of professional misconduct. The governor has no intention, as of what I heard, of ceding a molecule of his authority. Cuomo responded to the attorney general's report yesterday in a 14-minute pre-recorded video where he denied any wrongdoing. He has so far refused to step down. Berkeley County, West Virginia, is one of the places in the U.S. that's struggling to get a handle on the opioid epidemic. And it's where local efforts to stop the spread of the coronavirus may have unintentionally put people recovering from addiction in danger of relapsing. These scenes are playing out in communities around the U.S., When treatment centers and in-person support groups locked down, people in recovery lost access to the communities they relied on as part of their treatment. Last year, there were more than 93,000 fatal drug overdoses in the U.S. It was the deadliest year of the opioid epidemic that has claimed nearly one million lives. Washington Post reporter Peter Jameson brings us this story. Human beings are social creatures, and social interaction is obviously important to all of us. And in the field of addiction, addiction treatment and recovery, there is an especially strong tradition of these systems of mutual support and accountability, whether that's treatment centers, whether that's individual 12-step groups. And so what's lost when you no longer have this ability to interact in person is a primary component of successful addiction treatment. In West Virginia, Jameson spent time with a woman named Marissa Boone. Her husband, Jimmy Horton, had been clean for four years. Aside from his own struggle to stay sober, Horton knew the toll addiction could take on family members. He lost his sister to an overdose 16 years ago. For Horton and his wife, remaining grounded in day-to-day activities was really key. The way Jimmy's wife described this to me was that before the pandemic, he had established a series of routines that really kind of kept him busy and kept his mind off his own addiction. Jimmy was attending a church in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is a very popular church with recovering drug users in that area. He was going to the gym every morning with his wife. And what essentially happened to him is that that entire structure collapsed overnight. COVID disrupted Jimmy's sobriety rituals. In an effort to steer clear of one health epidemic, Jimmy, like so many people in the U.S., was put in danger of another. Jimmy's church closed. You know, his wife explained to me that they had attempted to log in remotely and and watch streaming services, but it just didn't really have the same effect for him. Their gym closed. This is a circumstance that can be very dangerous for people in recovery when they, they have too much time on their hands and they begin to think about going back to some of their older and more destructive patterns of behavior. And that's exactly what happened with Jimmy Horton. His father found him dead from a heroin overdose after four years of sobriety at his father's home in, in West Virginia. Millions of U.S. renters who are facing eviction now have about two more months to figure out how they're going to pay the rent. On Tuesday, following days of protest outside the Capitol led by freshman lawmaker Cory Bush, 
the Biden administration issued a new moratorium. This new rule bans evictions in areas of the U.S. with high coronavirus transmission rates. It's expected to cover about 90 percent of at-risk renters through October 3rd. The new moratorium is likely to open up a legal box of worms. In June, the Supreme Court ruled the CDC overstepped its authority when it created the first evictions moratorium. The other main sticking point, as Bloomberg reports, is whether two months is enough time for the federal rental assistance program to distribute money to people in need. The next time you try and do the TikTok Savage Dance Challenge, know you are performing someone else's intellectual property. Yes, Kira Wilson. She is the TikTok creator who originally choreographed the viral dance to Megan Thee Stallion's hit song Savage. Well, she now owns the copyright to that dance. BuzzFeed News explains how Wilson did it through a process called Leba Notation. It's this method of recording movement, like dance steps, using symbols, and then aligning those symbols in a pattern based on the music. She was approached to create this documentation of her dance by another choreographer, Jaquelle Knight, and the Swiss company Logitech. See, Knight and Logitech have been working together to help creators of color get recognized for their work. And now that Wilson owns the copyright to the Savage Dance, she should get proper credit when it's used. And if the dance is used in a for-profit production, like a movie or a video game, Wilson can charge for that. And she can take legal action if she is not properly credited. BuzzFeed says this is a big win for Black TikTok creators who've been saying they want credit for their choreographies. When U.S. shot putter Raven Saunders won a silver medal, she stood on the podium with her arms crossed in an X. Saunders is a Black, gay, Olympic athlete. She later explained the X was a form of protest. It represents the intersection where all people who are oppressed meet. The International Olympic Committee is now investigating to determine whether this act of protest violates the committee's rules. Time magazine provides some context here. It looks at the history of demonstrations at the Olympics. An early example was in 1906. Irish track and field athlete Peter O'Connor had to compete under the British flag. That was before Ireland had been established as a free state. O'Connor climbed a 20-foot flagpole and waved the Irish flag in protest. The most famous example of protest at the Olympics came in 1968. That's when American sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists on the medal podium in a black power salute during the Mexico City Games. Carlos and Smith were banned from the Olympics for this act, but that image of them on the podium, fists up in the air, went down in history. In the following years, the Olympic Committee created a new rule. The policy prohibited athletes from taking part in demonstrations of any kind anywhere on Olympic sites, but in the lead-up to the Tokyo Games, many people were calling for this rule to be changed, and the IOC did say it would allow athletes to engage in non-disruptive protests outside of competitions and not on the medal podium. Saunders' protest was the first time this new rule was put to test in Tokyo. Now she waits to find out whether the Olympic Committee will decide to punish her in some way. She tweeted, let them try and take this medal. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're in the app, 
keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. 